Welcome to Ask Andy featuring Andrew Redleaf. Ask Andy is sponsored by Park State Bank. Visit www.parkstatebank.com for all your banking needs. I want to talk today a little bit about interest rates. I think interest rates are a little bit like risk in that people use the word, they think they know what they're talking about, but it's really an amalgamation of a number of things. In finance articles, and if one thinks about Economics 101 textbook, there's the creation of what you might call platonic interest rates, a kind of uh, pure time value of money separated out from everything else. And uh, um, the first point I would make is that a pure time value of money is not directly observable in any financial instrument or market, and maybe not observable at all. What do I mean by this? Well, namely, that every fixed income security is an amalgamation. It contains you know, not only a component of this you know, so-called platonic interest rate, but other features that one might try and divine out or separate out. Classically, treasury bills, notes, and bonds were and probably still are thought to be the purest market representation of a time value of money, sometimes referred to as the risk-free rate of return. Not sure this was ever entirely true, but now I would add that treasuries embody more than just the time value of money. In particular, treasuries are super liquid, but also they are the universally accepted form of collateral for a whole bunch of transactions. So there's a, um, call it a use value for treasuries, which is to serve as the universal form of collateral that isn't there with other securities that very well may have no credit risk. So that's treasuries. When we move away from treasuries, one has to think about liquidity and whether there's a liquidity premia to be extracted. And I would posit that if one looks at certain asset-backed securities, AAA tranches of CLO, and I think I would also include certain AAA munis, there's typically a yield in those securities that can best be thought of as a liquidity premia. Uh, if you own one of those, you're likely to get a higher rate than on treasuries, and it's not because of credit risk, it's a liquidity premia. As one moves along, classically in corporate securities, one thinks of the stated coupon as having the component of platonic interest, but then also a component for uh, credit risk, and presumably a premia for credit risk, which is to say that one gets paid something for assuming credit risk. And so while a corporate bond will have a fixed coupon, it will frequently be quoted both, you know, price, yield, and as a spread to a comparable treasury. So whenever a uh, corporation brings a large credit deal, the coupon is announced and uh, you'll read in the paper that it was priced at 170 basis points, hypothetically, over the comparable treasury. Now, from my previous comment, one might suggest 
that quoting as a premium over treasuries is a little bit deceptive in that the treasury itself is not a pure platonic instrument and perhaps one could imagine a very high-grade corporate or such as a truer interest rate and it might be more useful to think of the A or triple B corporate credit you know, not in comparison to a treasury rate but in comparison to the whole universe of AAA securities. As one gets towards the slightly more esoteric, the package that is included in a fixed income security becomes somewhat more involved. For example, for financial institutions, certain assets, certain liabilities are going to be marked to market while certain others are not. That means these assets and liabilities have a component which you know, I might term uh, financial statement aesthetics for which people will attach a price. One of the current interesting phenomena is post the financial crisis, long-dated swaps, 30-year swaps, which are a measure of an interest rate that dealers charge each other, almost always collateralized bilaterally, so a very minimal credit component. But since the financial crisis, long-dated swaps have yielded less than the comparable treasury. Now, one would have thought that this might be impossible, given that it creates a fairly simple and straightforward arbitrage for any players that are able to borrow at LIBOR rates, simply uh, buying the comparable treasury and offsetting it with the swap and paying for the treasury purchase with overnight LIBOR level borrowings. So why has this occurred? I think, you know, almost the standard explanation, at least as it's been told to me, certain financial players, pension funds, and insurance companies actually sort of mark their asset side of the balance sheet and their liability side of the balance sheet are separate and governed by different rules. So in determining the level of a company's pension obligations, the total amount committed forward will be discounted back at a long-term treasury rate. So if interest rates go down, discount rate goes down, the value of the liability on that company's balance sheet goes up. They reduce this and maintain balance sheet aesthetics by selling long-dated swaps. It's not primarily a matter of adjusting their overall duration within their total books. It's a pure sort of balance sheet manipulation or edge. It's not done, you know, if in fact it was about asset liability matching, you know, in terms of duration. The fund might, in fact, instead of doing the swap transaction, buy the bond, the treasury security directly. In addition to what I might term pure economic bundles, which is to say it is actually an economic fact that treasury securities are universally accepted collateral. It's an economic fact that corporate issuers, particularly corporate issuers with cyclic businesses or 
um, material debt on their balance sheet have credit risk. They may, in fact, at some point not be able to pay all their debts in full as they come due. So that's economic. But in addition to economics, there are heuristics and almost conventions in pricing fixed income securities that I think one wants to be aware of. And there's profit to be made in distinguishing securities within a class for which the heuristic doesn't hold. Here, the specific example I would have in mind is the heuristic that for corporate credits, the credit spread should increase with the length of maturity. That is to say, a one-year double B credit may have a credit spread of, say, 70 basis points over a similarly dated treasury bill while their 10-year bonds have a 230 basis point spread over the similar maturity treasury. And for the most part, it's true that a company that can be more or less completely assured of being able to pay its bills over the next three, six months, year, two years, faces business uncertainty over three years, five years, 10 years. It's not universally true that a company's credit prospects increase over time. That in fact, if one is looking at, say, a 30-year bond versus a 20-year bond, the question for the spread between 20 and 30 is, given that the company has survived for 20 years, what are its prospects for surviving another 10? Not infrequently, it's the case that if a company surpasses current obstacles, they weather a current storm or a storm on the horizon in the visible future, that their prospects actually improve meaningfully. The last thing I would mention, and one that comes across and comes into play in multiple levels of finance, is a notion of risk aversion and risk neutrality. Now, to a risk-neutral investor, a dollar of gain is exactly symmetric with a dollar of loss. If they can flip a coin, a 50-50 coin, and win a dollar if the coin comes their way and lose 99 cents if it goes the other way, the risk-neutral investor sees that as a favorable bet and one they might partake in. To a risk-averse investor, a dollar of loss might have the same weight as $2 of gain. So, you know, in order to flip a 50-50 coin, he would want to be paid $2 if he wins for a dollar of loss if he loses. Now, presumably, there's a lot of evidence that in, you know, lots of domains, lots of times, investors are risk averse, which in theory and in practice presents risk neutral investors with an opportunity to make good bets. And in the fixed income market, where one sees this is in the term premium in interest rates. You know, at almost all times, we see a positively sloped yield curve, which is to say that one-year interest rates are higher than overnight interest rates, and two-year interest rates are higher still, and so on, 5, 10, 20, 30 years. And I think probably correct explanation is that as you lengthen 
maturities, the price sensitivity to any given level of change in interest rate is greater. So, you know, a 30-year bond is more volatile than a 10-year bond, which is more volatile than a five-year bond. And people need to be induced to take this price risk by being given a higher level of return. So that's the risk-averse story. The risk-neutral kind of story is that the current yield curve, the higher rate on 10 years versus the stuff before it, is a prediction that interest rates are going to rise in the future. And people calculate what are called forward curves, which just say what is the interest rate that needs to prevail in the future so that the total return for an investor is the same whether they buy a 10-year treasury bill today or they buy a one-year note and roll it every year or any combination in between. And so what's called an implied forward curve is derived. And one can speculate on to what degree that's a function of risk aversion to which the risk-neutral investor can take advantage or to what extent it's a bet on the future course of interest rates. And a somewhat anomalous, unusual circumstance today is that the yield curve is very, very steep from two years to 10 years, flattening from 10 to sort of 20, and then very flat going forward from 20 to 30. So if one understands the yield curve as a prediction of future rates, the current yield curve is predicting a meaningfully inverted yield curve in three, four, or five years. I think it's an interesting speculation to bet against that, to say that in the future, people are apt to demand a term premium and that therefore the yield curve is too steep at the front end uh, relative to its slope in the back end. Hope this has been interesting. We'll probably be back again next week. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Ask Andy. If you would like to submit a question, please email askandypodcast at gmail.com. Ask Andy is sponsored by Park State Bank. Visit www.parkstatebank.com for all your banking needs.